In, in the ancient Hebrew Bibles, you had no chapter and verse. So if you wanted to reference like a passage, then you would reference a key word or phrase that it started with. So this one is called Vayetze from the beginning verses, and he went out. So uh, this, is the, this is the portion that where we learn the biblical way for single people to find their spouses. The biblical way for single people to find their spouses is to go to the well. See, last parsha uh, we read about how, or whatever, about Eliezer had to go and find, she, he found Rebecca at the well, now Jacob finds Rachel at the well, and, uh, and then Moses is going to meet uh, Zipporah at the well. So, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know, we need to dig some wells or something, and so we can go back to doing things the Bible way, hey? <laughs> uh, maybe that's it. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, actually, that's something I was thinking about also. Is there another instance where a man has a conversation with a woman at a well? Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Yeshua has a conversation with the Samaritan woman, whom he, according to traditional Jewish law, not according to biblical law, but according to traditional Jewish law, he wasn't allowed to talk with her because she was a Samaritan. Another instance of him breaking people's paradigms and stepping out of the box and uh, in the name of love, which is so cool. And I just kind of, I kind of, I kind of wonder if that isn't a theme. I know like throughout the scriptures, we were talking about this last week, what does water represent? Life, like real life, eh? Like when you take that drink of cold, refreshing water, if you didn't do that for a couple of days, you'd be dead. And uh, it's just, that's like a, a constant theme. And I wonder if, like, John chapter 4, where it talks about Yeshua talking with the woman at the well, isn't a picture of how he, like, communicates with us. Like, we all have needs. We need real life. And sometimes we feel really dry inside. Sometimes we feel, like, hollow or empty or, like, there has to be more to life. And maybe that's where Yeshua comes to meet us, eh? Hey? Like, at our point of need for real life. And I just think that's cool that that's where he talked to the lady at the well. Maybe that's a cool place for, like, for us to start with people in the world, like on our job sites or at the office or whatever, you know, you start with what, what are people's real needs? Because, it, you know, people's real needs are legitimate ones, and Yeshua came to meet those. And uh, maybe there's a theme there, hey? So I, w- I want to talk about a couple things from the first chapter that are really profound, especially a couple things that you wouldn't notice unless you read it in the Hebrew. Um, like, all of us have heard Yeshua's call to follow him, and we've all said yes. And we're all, like, following him as, you know, with all our hearts. And if we weren't, then we wouldn't be here. <laughs> and Jacob also had heard the call, and he was on a journey. And there's something, I think, really relevant from this chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. It says... Uh, so Jacob has this vision, eh? I don't know if he ever had a God encounter before that. It might have just been like his dad's God before that. But he has this vision, and God speaks personally to him, and he wakes up in the morning and he says in verse 16, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I didn't know it. And I thought about that. Jacob, we talked about expectations the other week, how God was not meeting the expectations of Rebekah. And 
how God sometimes doesn't meet our expectations. Here's another example of this. Hey, I mean, Jacob got the blessing. He got the birthright. You'd think that life would have been a cruise for him after that. Everything would be easy, eh? But no, in fact, he has to run away from home. He's running for his life. His brother, who's a very dangerous man, wants to kill him. And things maybe aren't going as he thought they would, eh? And he wakes up and he says, Wow, God is here and I didn't know it. And I wonder if we don't have times in our life when we're like in the midst of, when we're facing something hard, or we're having a crisis, or God just doesn't seem like he's coming through for us. Like, things are not turning out as we, we thought they would, eh? And maybe that's a time to stop and be like, maybe God is here, even though it doesn't seem like it. Even though I don't know it. Maybe it's a time to stop and have one of those wake-up moments. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's, that's, that's something that I see in the life of the patriarch Jacob that maybe applies to us. I know, I can, I can think of times like that in my journey. Um, something else I see in the life of Jacob that I think is a dynamic that's in all of our lives is the whole concept of defining moments. Like, we have, we have times when we encounter God personally, and it's like a defining moment. You know, maybe he'll say something personally to you about how he sees you, or what he thinks of you, or what he's done for you through the Messiah. And it breaks a paradigm in your mind. Maybe, maybe, like, maybe you have had experiences as a child where your parents told you you, are, you can't do something, you are incapable, or you know, where you are not loved, or something like that. Eh? I mean, I've had experiences like that in my past. And then God breaks through, and He gives you a revelation of Himself, and you realize He, he, he does love me. I am lovable. I am capable through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are defining moments. And I love, I love seeing the defining moments in the lives of some of these heroes of the faith. I, I think this one was, this was a defining moment for Jacob. I mean, before this, it looks like he was just kind of faithing the thing, eh? Like, it doesn't say that he had any real personal encounters with God. He really wanted God's blessing. He was desperate for God's best, you know, with his whole uh, ruse to get the birthright. But it wasn't until this that he had one of those like real defining moments. And I love his response to it because maybe it's something that, that we can incorporate in our lives. Like when God revealed himself to Jacob and he had a defining moment, he woke up in the morning and firstly he talked about it, which is cool, we can do that. He told, and uh, he, he set up a, a pillar, like a pillar of stone and he dumped olive oil on it. And I highly doubt that that's the only way to, to do that. But maybe the concept is memorializing it. Maybe, for instance, if you have family or friends, you want to talk to them if God shows you something really cool. It's a defining moment. Or maybe you want to write it down in a prayer journal. Or uh, however, you, however, however you record things. So that, that's something I noticed from Jacob's life that really applies to us also. And, uh, man... This is so cool. There's like this Hebrew word that pops up several times. And I, 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 I kind of have the feel for the Hebrew concept, but the New American Standard Bible that I usually read from, it kind of missed, I thought it kind of missed the point. But this one here, the way it read, it was so cool. If we could read, uh, look at chapter 28, verse 14. Chapter 28, verse 14. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in here. Because it makes more sense. It says that your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of dust on the earth and you will expand to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And that word there for expand is parats. Can we all say parats? It, it, it pops up again later in this parsha in uh, chapter 28, verse 43. 
And uh, I want to see how it reads in here. There it is, chapter 30, verse 43. It says, In this way the man became very rich and had large flocks along with male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. How, how do, I, how do I, another couple translations have that there? NAS says, uh, He became exceedingly prosperous. Are there any other translations of that? Okay. Okay, the word there for increased is parats. He paratsed. In other words, he, he expanded. But uh, here's the cool thing. Remember Jacob had two sons by Tamar? And who was the first one to break out? They tied a red string around his hand. You mean uh, Judah? Judah. Oh, Judah. Sorry, yeah, Judah. Thank you. Does anyone remember what his name was? It was Peretz. And why was his name Peretz? Because he broke out. He was the first to break out. So there's this Hebrew word, and it's, it's bursting with energy. And it has the concept of breaking out. It has the concept of, like, busting out. It has the concept of expanding. And this is the word used to characterize the people of God. When we are, like, experiencing the blessing of God, we are expansive. We're, we're breaking out. And uh, I really love the feel of that. I, I even see that like here in Prince Albert. You know, people are, are meeting God and they are encountering Him and they're experiencing His blessing in their life. And the result is you, you break out of old paradigms. You know, if, if there were issues where people, if, you know, like the walls in the body of Christ, well, we don't, we don't associate with those people because we have a doctrine that's a little different than them. You know, when we come into the blessing of God, we break out of that mindset. He brings us together in His love. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And uh, the whole concept of expansiveness, I think, really defines that. You know, I mean, sometimes, I think we live our lives on the defensive. You know, everybody's out to get us especially the, the devil, and he's in controlling the world, and I mean, I'm just barely surviving, right? I mean, I've got a, I'm kind of like running around from trench to trench and hiding in my bunker and bang, bang, bang at everybody because they're all out to get me, you know? I mean, really, that's how some people do life. And I don't know, sometimes that can kind of creep into our believing mindset either. We can almost, we can use Bible verses to try and, try and back up our, our negativity, and uh, we can, you know, we can kind of use our spiritual discernment to discern that everybody is out to get us, and they're all bad, you know, except for me, of course. <laughs> really? I mean, sometimes we can get like that. But the, the concept behind parats is not that. It's like realizing God is in control of the universe. We have a king who created this place. And Yeshua is leading his people in triumph. And, and it's an expansive outlook. It's like we are part of a kingdom that is going to steamroll planet Earth. We are, like Yeshua is going to inherit the planet. And as his bride... We're going to be sitting right next to him. We're co-heirs with him. That's an expansive outlook. That's, that's a very positive look at the world. There are people who have hope. <laughs> and that's kind of the concept behind this. You know, in Jacob's case, he, uh, he, you couldn't get him down. You couldn't beat him. You look at Laban, hey? Laban tried over and over to cheat Jacob, to get the best of him, to trick him. And I mean, he did succeed in tricking Jacob that once. I assume God let that happen. But other than that, you couldn't keep the guy down. And that's a picture of the body of Messiah. When, we're, when we want God's best, when we're, when we're really going for the blessing, we're like uh, Judas on parrots. We're just, we're breaking out. And uh, I, I love seeing how that's happening in our generation. I, I think the whole Messianic Jewish movement is a, is a part of that also. Well, actually,
actually, this is cool too. There's a connection here. Um, Matthew chapter 16. We didn't watch the Matthew DVD, but hopefully you, you went through that at home. There's a, there's a place where Yeshua is talking about his church, about his congregation, and he uses similar language. And uh, I, I, I like how the message paraphrase has it, actually. He talks about how, I'm going to build my congregation, and the gates of Sheol, of hell, will not prevail against it. And uh, the, the message paraphrases it as saying, like, that it is a congregation so expansive with energy that the gates of Sheol won't win against it. And that's kind of the idea. So, uh, chapter, chapter 16, verse 18. Maybe the difference in that would be like a city just defending itself against a bigger army, something stronger, mm-hmm. or it would actually be a, a city not just defending itself, but expanding and taking over the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. One would be actually almost taking over, and the other would be expanding and taking other things over. Right. That's cool. I never thought about that. Nice to be on the expanding side. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I want to give you guys three messianic insights from this parasha and uh, a couple of free Hebrew treasures also. Um, yeah. <laughs> the free on Shabbat. <laughs> uh, chapter 28, there's this deep picture of Messiah. It says in chapter 28, verse 10, that Yaakov departed. And then in verse 11, he came to, the New American Standard says, a certain place. But in the Hebrew, it just says, the place. He came to the place. And the, in verse 11 of chapter 28. Okay. Yep. So uh, I want to teach you that word because it's actually a title for Messiah in Jewish tradition. And there's a really cool reason for that. Uh, the Hebrew word for, word for place is makom. Can we all say makom? If you want to say the place, how would you say that? Ha makom. That's right. Can we all say ha makom? Okay. No. It says he came to the place and spent the night there because the sun had come. Is literally how it says in Hebrew. And he took one of the stones of what? Hamakom, and put it under his head and lay down where? In Hamakom, in the place. And then later in uh, in verse 16 it goes on. So he has this he has this vision. And then it says then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in Hamakom, the place. And I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is Hamakom, the place? So it, it, it uses the term, actually, if I'm not mistaken, seven times in this narrative. And Jewish scholars have noted that it talks about the place over and over. And that's not generally the term that you would use. So what does that tell us? It tells us that this is something to do with Messiah. That's the, that's the traditional Jewish conclusion. This passage is somehow to do with Messiah. In fact, they've even gone so far as to say that this is a title for Messiah. He is the place, Hamakom. And in Jewish tradition, actually, this has also become a name for God. He is the place. If you're just talking about God in Hebrew, you'll you'll, you'll sometimes call him the place. It's a very respectful term. And maybe that doesn't make sense to us, but listen to how it's translated in a traditional Jewish prayer book. It's translated as the omnipresent. They translate Hamakom as the omnipresent. God is the omnipresent. He's everywhere. We believe that, right? But it's kind of cool to actually talk about God and just have that as a standard term for him. Yeah, I was spending some time with the omnipresent this morning over his word, you know? (laughs) I like that. 
So here's the interesting thing. The traditional Jewish opinion is not only God called the omnipresent, but so is his Messiah. Now, if, if a person is omnipresent, do you think he might be a little bit more than just human? I, I reckon, eh? I mean, you'd have to be the Son of God or to be like, have God indwelling you or to be God himself to be omnipresent. And that's a Jew, traditional Jewish title for Messiah. <laughs> so, that's a paradigm breaker, actually. And, uh, you know, Paul, Paul was in touch with a lot of this kind of ideology in the traditional Jewish understanding of God. And here's a really cool passage from the book of Acts where he reflects that. Kind of the idea behind Hamakom, God being the place. In Acts chapter 17, he's talking to a large assembly of philosophers, um, some of the greatest minds of their generation in in, uh, Greece. And uh, chapter 17, verse 27, he says, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. What's the Hebrew title for God that kind of encapsulates that idea, that He's not far from us? Yes, the omnipresent, Hamakom. <laughs> why, is, why is this? Because in Him we live and move and exist, have our being. Wow. See, that's, that's the thought behind the Macomb. God isn't just everywhere, but He's the ultimate context for reality. All of existence takes place within His realm. You can't get away from Him. <laughs> He's everywhere. That's, that's, that's the idea behind Hamakom. And it's also the idea behind Yeshua, the Messiah. So anyway, for me anyway, that gave me such a, a great awe for our Savior and uh, also for our God. Um, the second really cool picture of Messiah that I see in this Parsha is in chapter 29, verse 20. I mean, you have to love the romance of chapter 20. You know, Jacob goes all the way over there. He performs this seemingly superhuman feat of strength and he rules the rock away that it usually takes how many shepherds to roll. And uh, then he meets Rachel and he bursts out crying and kisses her. And it's, it's like, it's so cool, you know. And then in verse uh, 20 it says, so Yaakov served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Two days. I wonder if that isn't a picture of Messiah. Does Yeshua have a great love for his bride? I, I, I kind of wonder. I mean, on our side of things, this has been a really long haul. Eh? I mean, it's been almost 2,000 years that Yeshua has been gone. I mean, like, you know, physically gone. And we've been standing on the promise of his return. And that we have definitely had direct communication with him through the Holy Spirit. We, 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 we sense his presence in our midst. But we don't have him in the flesh where we can see his face, where he'll sit on the throne and rule from Jerusalem, etc. And on our side, it's a long time. 2,000 years is a really long time. But for him, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just like a couple days. Interestingly enough, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And with the Lord, a millennium is like a 24-hour block of time. So 2,000 years, two days, you know, all these years seem like just two days for Jacob because of his great love for Rachel. What a cool picture of Messiah. It's kind of a hint from the Torah that Messiah maybe wasn't going to show up as fast as some people thought. I mean, the first couple of generations of believers, they thought all oh, Yeshua was coming back right away, just uh, hanging there for a couple of years. 
and it took longer than what anybody has probably thought. And it's just nice to know that there's, there's a hint of that in the Torah. This thing wasn't unforeseen. Um, the, the third and last Hebrew insight, or the Messianic insight I wanted to share with you is from chapter 30, verse 24. Um, we're talking about Jacob and how he is a picture of Messiah. And we're going to touch on Joseph for a second. Joseph is probably the most graphic and complete picture of Messiah in the whole Torah. He is so much like Messiah. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of things that, that prefigure Yeshua. Even think about this. Who is Yeshua's father, his earthly father? Joseph. Therefore, Yeshua's Hebrew name would have been what? Yeshua ben Yosef. That's correct. Jesus, son of Joseph. And that's what he's called several times also. Yeshua also had a brother named Joseph. He had four younger brothers, and one of them was named Joseph. So he's surrounded by this Joseph theme, eh? And uh, also in the traditional Jewish thought, there's a Messiah who's going to come named Messiah ben Joseph. Messiah, son of Joseph. And he's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah 53, etc. That's what traditional Jewish people believe. Now, we believe that too, except that we believe that it already happened. And we're expecting Messiah, son of David, to come and, and rule with an iron scepter. So, we have this, uh, this picture in the very opening verses about Joseph when he's born. In uh, chapter 30, verse 24. Um, let's try chapter... 30 verse... Oh, I don't know. No, it's... Oh yeah, verse 24. Okay, good. So it says, She named him Yosef, saying, May Yahweh give me another son. And this is Joseph's name. This is the meaning behind his name. What does this tell us about Messiah? It tells us that even though Yeshua is the unique and only begotten Son of God, He was never meant to be the only child of God. He was meant to come and what? Bring lots more children into the family of God. That's what the name Joseph means. May many, many more children be brought into the family. May God add many more sons to me. And uh, we actually see this theme. I'm sure the early believers were in touch with this. Just based on the meaning of, of Joseph's name. Here, here's a cool example of it in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Yeah, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. <laughs> so I love that. Like right from the start, God has this plan to have, for Yeshua to have many younger brothers and sisters in the family. And to bring us all to glory, according to the book of Hebrews. Okay, I have a little handful of free Hebrew treasures also from this text. Um, there have been two times already where promises were made to Abraham and Isaac that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Do you remember that? And the Hebrew word for blessed is nivrechu. And we learned that nivrechu is not the usual word that you would use in Hebrew for blessed. But nivrechu is a word that's used quite often in the Hebrew language to mean something else. Can anybody remember what it was? Nivrechu is the Hebrew word for being grafted in. It's an agricultural term for grafting a branch from one tree 
into another one. And this was this is just common in Hebrew. This was common 2,000 years ago. Nivrahu could mean being blessed, but it could also mean being grafted in. So if someone like Paul, who grew up speaking Hebrew in Jerusalem and reading the Bible in Hebrew, was to read this passage, this promise to Abraham about how he, through his seed all the nations of the earth, all the Gentile families of, of the nations would be blessed, what's the other way that he would probably read that and think about it? Grafted in. That's right. So that's where Paul got that idea from in, in the book of Romans. He didn't just necessarily pull that out of thin air. Um, this was this was a theme in the Torah that Paul said was really good news. So I really I really love just seeing like that connection with that. Um, we celebrated like a biblical new month celebration a couple weeks ago, and we had a great time of worship. And uh, can anyone remember what the Hebrew term for new month is? Rosh Chodesh. That's correct. So what's the word for new in the in there? Rush. And what's the word for month? Chodesh. That's correct. And uh, here we have, we have that word in chapter 29, verse 11. This isn't supposed to be exciting. This is just, you're getting your, your weekly Hebrew lesson, okay? <laughs> chapter 29, verse 11. Oh, that's not it either. You know what? When I wrote my references here, I don't know. I think I was really tired. But they say, like, stay with us, and he stayed with them. It says, Chodesh Yamim. About a month's worth of, of days. Okay, verse 14. Okay. Um, another one I love, out of like all of Leah's children's names, I really love the meaning behind Judah. You know, her first three, her first three sons, it's, it's a really heartbreaking story. You know, like she desperately wants her husband's love and it's just not happening. And she names her first three sons out of that longing. And then her fourth son, Judah, comes along and she takes a new approach. She says, this time, I'm going to praise Yahweh. So she named him Judah. And the reason is, Judah means what? Praise. Praise. Yeah, it literally means to confess. Is in like verbally thanking God, verbally shouting His praises, using your mouth to uh, call on His name. That's the whole connotation. So this whole concept of Jewishness, what is at the very heart of Jewishness from the very beginning? Because, you know, Jew is from the, the term Judah, right? What's the concept, what's the heart of it? Yeah, it's like a, a, a true Jew, you could say, with a Jewish heart, is someone who loves to confess God's name, who loves to call on Him in prayer, who loves to give thanks to Him whenever possible, who loves to praise Him to the world around Him. That, that's, that's, that's the heart of a Jew. And I really love that. These are also the Chronicles say, my people that are called by my name. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowhere else, nowhere else do people call after the name of, of Abba except in this place, in mm. this instance. Mm -hmm. Yehuda. Hmm. Yeah, right. So I, you know, when, on, on, a, on a personal note, I have really enjoyed studying the tradition of prayer in the Jewish world. A lot of the prayers that are prayed on a daily and weekly basis in the synagogue were prayed in Yeshua's time. There are things that he grew up with that he was very familiar with. Often you'll see elements of the traditional liturgy coming out in his teaching or in the writings of the New Testament. And, uh, you know, I, I would su suggest, you know, get a, get a Jewish prayer book and read some of the really ancient prayers and see how they point to Messiah. See how they glorify God. See how they reflect the Jewish people fulfilling their mission to be a people that live for the praise of God, that live to bless them whenever possible. 
Which is why we say, Blessed you, Lord our God, for so many things. <laughs> That's what we were born to do as God's people. I really love that. And uh, we had also been talking about the Hebrew root for remember, which is zikhar. Can we all say zikhar? If you want to say, and somebody remembered you, say vayizkor. Can we say that? Vayizkor? Yeah. First time it's mentioned is about Noah. It says that God remembered Noah and he sent the wind to dry up the water. And uh, talked about that with Sarah. God remembered Sarah and he visited her and enabled her to conceive. And we were learning about how in our culture, remembering means to call something to mind. You know, maybe it'll cross your mind. You, the opposite of remember in our culture is to forget. Right? But that's actually not the meaning of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is to, it's like a covenant term, and it means to act on behalf of someone. God remembered Noah, and he acted on his behalf, and dried up the water. God remembered Sarah, and he acted on her behalf, and enabled her to conceive. And uh, we, have this, we have this same beautiful poetic uh, phraseology in this parsha in uh, chapter 30, verse 22. I'm getting scared to say the verses, because they seem to all be wrong this week. Oh, what are you like? Chapter 30, verse 22, it says, Vayizkor Elohim et Rachel. And God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So, you know, when we pray that God will remember someone, when we're interceding, we're saying, God, we pray that you would act on behalf of this person. We pray that you would intervene in their life. God, you have, you have a covenant with this person. Remember your covenant and do something for them in their time of need. That's what it means to remember. And God remembers each of us. And he acts on our behalf every day. He's constantly intervening in situations. And I love that about him. Yeah, because he's a covenant-keeping God. And uh, this is also the picture of remembering Shabbat. You know, it's a day, it's not just something that we remember like, oh yeah, right, it's God's Sabbath. It's the kind of thing where we can act on it also. You know, as, as his Holy Spirit leads. So that's something that uh, I, really, I really love about that word. Actually, this is something interesting also. There are, there's that one, and there are five other things in the Torah that it says to remember. Yeah, and the Jewish people have actually incorporated that into the, into the prayers so they remember them on a regular basis. Because most of us really don't have a clue what the six things are he says to remember, eh? I mean, really, if you were to pop that question on someone, man, we should watch for those. As we're reading through the Torah this year, let's watch for the, like, the six things that he says to remember. That'll be kind of fun. Yeah, and I just want to share one thing from... Uh, the New Covenant passage also. Something I really admire about Yeshua is his passion for God and his passion for people. You definitely see like his level of compassion and he was so human. And uh, like he could reach anybody. He could talk on anybody's level, eh? But something I also see in this passage is he had a real passion for the written word of God also. He had a passion for God's commandments even. And I just think it's so beautiful, the marriage of those two concepts in the Master. You know, that you kind of see, sometimes you see one side or the other. You'll see people who, who really want, they're, they're careful not to be religious. And I respect that. And so, you know, you kind of only focus on the grace and you only focus on the love and compassion. And that's such a huge part of God's heart. But sometimes we can almost forget about the other side that the Master displayed, that he was also a man who was passionate about the written word of God. And he didn't compromise God's standards. And uh, if someone was like, playing fast and loose with God's word or elevating human traditions that came from who knows where from somebody's brain elevating those above the written word Yeshua didn't back down when that happened he would, he would, he would confront that situation 
And uh, I'm really thankful for that. I think he still does that in our lives today. So, you know, as we read the Word, let's just throw ourselves open to it and let him come in and break whatever paradigms we may have that aren't from him and just continue to not only let him give us that heart of compassion and love for people, like we saw with the the lady with the demon-possessed daughter, but also that passion for the written Word of God, that passion to see God's commandments incorporated in our daily lifestyles as a sign of our devotion to Him and as a, as a celebration of the righteousness that we already have with Him. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.